Wildfires have occurred on our planet for millions of years, helping bring new growth and diversity to forests and ecosystems. Weather and climate play a central role in wildfire occurrence. Changes to our climate, however, and the effects of human activity have impacted wildfire patterns, resulting in increased risks of major events like those seen this summer in Europe, North America and Asia. Hello and welcome to the MedIron Podcast. I'm Noel Fitzpatrick. In this episode, we are exploring wildfires, how they start, how they spread, how best to tackle and prevent them, and the role played by climate change. Later in this episode, we hear from wildfire researcher Jennifer Barron speaking to us from Canada on the huge blazes they've had in recent years. First, we talk with firefighter Darren O'Connor. Darren is a station manager for the Dublin Fire Brigade and an instructor in wildfire fighting. So Darren, thank you very much for coming in today. It's great to talk to you. Appreciate you giving us your time. Um, maybe to start off just with the very sort of basics, is there um, a definition for a wildfire? Um, well, generally in, in the Forest Service in Ireland, we don't really use a definition. So uh, the UK do have a defined um, definition of a wildfire and it's it depends on the amount of pumps that are in attendance. So pumps are fire appliances. The fire engine that you would see driving down the street, we refer to them as pumps. So they need a certain amount of pumps and then some of them, the brigades in the UK go by acreage or square meterage that if a fire is over a certain square meterage of land that it can be classed as an actual wildfire that needs action taken for suppression. Generally in Ireland, we don't really, um, certainly in Dublin Fire Brigade, we don't. We have predetermined attendances, they're called PDAs, and we have different descriptors. So when you ring up and driving down the motorway, you see a car on fire and you call it in. So the first word is, is fire, obviously. Yeah. And then it's for a car. And there's a PDA, predetermined attendance of, of an appliance or a pump sent to that. So we have fire grass, fire forest, fire gorse, and then fire small. So if someone, it depends on the information that the caller sends in. So if you say, look, there's a small bit of grass on fire at the back of my house. Is it going far? No, it's only a bit of smoke. They might send one appliance or one pump. And then if someone rang in and said, there's a large amount of gorse, up on the side of the hill, and um, we can see it from here. And then the phones start to, okay. <laughs> to start to hop into yes, control room. Yeah. Again, it's based on situational awareness. There's information coming in, so they might put the full PDA out of uh, of two or three pumps. So you mentioned a few different uh, fuels there, I guess, in terms of like grass or gorse or forest. In Ireland, is there a particular type of wildfire that we get more of? Um, things involving fine fuels. So okay. if they're, again, there's different references to them. They're called flash fuels, they're called fine fuels, they're called one-hour fuels. Um, generally, anything under a quarter of an inch of it, you know, so if you look at the makeup of a gorse bush, they're under a quarter of an inch, the, you know, the stems and the, the foliage is under six millimetres, a quarter of an inch. Um, they burn really, really quickly. Okay, yeah. And the reason they're referred to as one-hour fuels is they can lose their moisture content. These dead fuels, dead fuel parts, and can lose their moisture content in an hour, but they can also gain it in an hour. Um, so they're they're the more problematic one. They burn really fast. You know, they give off a lot of smoke. They produce high flames, and they're the problematic one. It's just they burn so rapidly. Okay. Then you're getting into coarse fuels, which are twigs and branches. They're maybe uh, you're looking at 100 hour fuels. They can lose their the moisture content with 100 hours, and then you're getting into big huge logs and dead trees, what they call thousand hour fuels. So they need a thousand hours to try out to burn back into the core. You know, so there's different types, but the main fuels we come across are. Our crops, fine fuels like that, scrubland, um, natural uh, forest, and then plantations. Okay. And then we generally don't get plantations on fire in Ireland because anyone that enjoys the outdoors, if you walk into a planted forest, it's dark, it's damp, there's no foliage inside, there's mm -hmm. no fuel in there. Um, walk into natural woodlands, it's generally all green. 
you know. And then the big one is the regeneration forest. So if you walk into a newly planted forest where everyone looks and goes, oh, look, there are Christmas trees. They're not actually Christmas trees. They're, they're young trees. The sunlight can still get into the bottom. You get all the dead grasses, you get all the litter, you get all the leaves and stuff like that. And that's extremely flammable. Okay. And that's that's a huge asset to people as well. It's a huge asset to forestry companies and agencies as well. Like, you know, and that's that can be a big loss okay. when okay. that burns, you know. Are there certain regions in Ireland where you tend to get more forest fires or, or wildfires than others? And you're at human activity. <laughs> right, okay, yeah. Yeah, look, come here, it's no secret, you know. Um, people try and blame everyone, you know, the, the, the farmers born in agricultural waste, you know, so they can burn from the 1st of September to 28th of uh, February now. They they come in for a bit of a, a bit of hassle, you know. Um, look, we do get forests, unmanaged forests that are, that are lit on, on property that eventually spread, but look, we're there, we're there to manage them. But generally, in the urban setting, we've got this area called the Wildland Urban Interface. You'd see it all over Dublin. You see housing estates, you see the urban sprawl where it meets, you know, <laughs> You're just into you're nearly into agriculture. Yes, there's, yeah, a, there's an actual yeah. divide there. So that's the interface, and then you've got an intermix. So if you look at the likes of the peninsula of Houghton, Dublin, mm. Colony Hill in South Dublin as well, you've got all these big properties dotted amongst all this live vegetation yes, and dead okay. vegetation. So, and there's a lot of public access. You know, people where people use for recreation. You might get you know social things happening during the of day. Of course, yeah. Um, they generally seem to be the, the, the problematic areas for us. Anywhere there's access. We don't get, like over in the likes of Canada, they get dry lightning strikes out yes, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. You know, vast quantities of forestry out in miles away from, from human activity and they get these forest fires. We don't get them here. Okay, so in, in Ireland, the majority of triggers, say, for these wildfires mm. are, are probably human. Yeah, the ignition is okay. is generally due to... Uh, Sometimes it's down to complacency. Mm. It's not, you know, it's not down to malice. Sometimes mm. it is. Sometimes it's down just to complacency. It can be cigarettes. It can be cars parking on, uh, cars parking on, you know, hot exhaust on the grass on beaches and stuff like that. Okay. You can get uh, people to dispose of stuff, not disposing stuff properly into bins. You can get like small, the disposable barbecue is uh, is front and center at the moment. Okay. You know, we've had okay. a, we have a media campaign to try and highlight the dangers of them, you know. We've seen, obviously seen a lot of domestic forests um, on balconies being started from them as well. And we've a lot of kind of wildfires and stuff like that as well. So when you've, you have that trigger, what uh, what other sort of ingredients do you need uh, for wildfire to happen? Um, so obviously you need the fuel. So you need the quantity of the fuel, which is the density of it. And then it's uh, how uniform it is. So when we arrive at a wildfire, we're looking to establish is, uh, is the rate of spread you know, and that's expressed in meters per minute, how quick it's actually spreading. And if the fuel is uniform, so say you take um, header and scrubland, it's the same height, it's the same fuel, it covers the whole area, it's going to burn at the same rate. And then if you're looking at an intermix of fuels, it's going to burn at, you know, one's going to burn fast, then it's going to slow down, then it's going to, you know, so you're looking at, at that kind of stuff as well. The big thing is when we're looking at, at wildfires, we, we use a tool called the wildfire prediction system. And there's a number of factors in there. We look at things called alignment factors. So we're looking at the wind, first of all. Then we're looking at the slope, the topography, and then we're looking at the aspect. So we can plot them on a map. So if you light a fire in a field, just take, for instance, you stubble, yeah. okay, after being cut. You light a fire in the middle of that field, it's on flat ground, there's no wind, it's not in the sunshine, and, it, and there's, no, there's nothing, no other influence on it. That would burn in a circle, burn out at the same rate in uniform. If you add a bit of wind to that, now it's going to drive it, it's going to give it direction. It's going to start curing the fuels in front of it, going to drive the flames forward. If you now put that onto a hillside, 
if you go onto a 10 degree slope, if you've got fuel burning and you go onto a slope of 10 degrees, it will actually double the rate of spread. Wow, okay. If you go to 20 degrees, it'll quadruple the rate of spread. So if you have 50 meters burning on the flat ground, driven by a wind, say, and it goes onto a 10 degree slope, you're now looking at 100 meters per hour. If it goes onto a 20 degree slope, it's now 200 meters. That, that's how much for 200, it'll burn that much in an hour. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, and then you're looking at the aspect. So, as I said earlier, the fine fuels can lose their moisture in an hour. You try and explain that to people and they'd look at you like saying, there's no way that can happen. But if you get a bottle of water on a really warm day and spill it on the ground, it's gone. Two minutes, it's gone. Yeah. The same thing happens to moisture in the, in the fuels, basically. They will lose the moisture. So if it's in the sunshine, it's completely dry and cured. Throw a bit of wind in, put it onto a slope. <laughs> and that's where you get your problematic forest. So then are you, you mentioned the wind there, obviously been a really important factor. Yeah. Are there certain weather conditions that you're looking out for? You know, if you see these coming in advance, you know, okay, there's a good chance we'll have some wildfires. Yeah, so so obviously um, to jump ahead then into the warning system, um, you know, you people be aware of like the, there's the yellow, there's the green, there's the orange warning. What you're looking for is you're looking for high wind speeds, but you're looking for low humidity. So you're looking for drier winds. So if you've got winds coming in to bring in plenty of moisture in and they're keeping the humidity level up, that'll keep the moisture level in the fuels okay, up. Yeah. But if you're bringing high winds in that are cold and dry, they're going to cure the fuel even more. Then if you're looking at sunlight, so you're looking at dry conditions. And then generally, if you're looking at the weekend where there's loads of activity and loads of risk, because every person that goes out outdoors brings a risk onto the, onto the hillside or into the, whatever area they're, they're using for recreation. So... We're primarily looking at the winds and how dry they are. Um, and then the, the relative humidity is a huge thing for us when you're coming up with a suppression plan. You know, so you're coming up with a suppression plan, you're looking at the amount of daylight hours left, you're looking at the current temperature, you're looking at the predicted temperatures, currents, wind speed, wind direction, and then you're looking at the humidity level. And I mean, Ireland is generally considered quite a humid country. And mm particularly seasonally, you know? So I, I guess uh, in terms of wildfires, is it quite a seasonal sort of concern yeah, for so you? So some of the winds that come in around February, would you believe, um, they're actually very dry. Yeah. They'll drop the humidity level into the, the late 30s, early 40s. And then what, not to go back to the farmers again, but you do have agricultural burning, licensed agricultural burning going on, which again is a risk. And then you have, you have activities on the hillside as well, like, you know, so... Vegetation is really dry around February. Vegetation is really dry. We get a spike in the odd. If you can get, like, you might get a sixteen degree, eighteen degree, unusual temperature. People go out on the hillside, you know, and the fuel is 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 bone dry. Okay. Where people think like it's look, it's the middle of winter, dark days and that kind of stuff. But these winds can be extremely dry. So if if a fire has occurred, say a member of the public has seen mm. a wildfire occur and they they ring nine 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 or one one two to report a wildfire. Uh, what's what's the first step there? Who gets notified of a wildfire? Yeah, so generally when people call 909 or 112, it's obviously it's answered by a, a system called ECAS, Emergency Call Answering Service, and it's passed through to uh, whatever forest service you're looking for. So if you're looking for, just say, our Dublin Fire Brigade, it's answered in the uh, Eastern Regional Communication Centre, which is based in Townsend Street, and that handles all the calls for 13 counties on the east coast of Ireland. So there's three of those centres in Ireland, um, and then the caller is not usually asked what county they're calling from. So pick, say, Wexford. Calling from County Wexford is a fire in, on a hillside in Gorey. Gorey Forest Station be notified. And on the system then, for whichever forest area is being notified, the call take will put in fire slash grass, fire slash gorse. And then the PDA is the resource. The, the PDA then 
is responded to. So the PDA could be two pumps. Okay. And a, and a rostered senior fire officer. In Dublin, it could be two pumps and a district officer. Whatever for, whatever way the fire service that's responded and operates. Some of the fire services around Ireland are very well equipped to uh, to respond to world fires. Done a massive amount of training between um, the Catalonian the bombers in in Catalonia and the Catalonian fire service are called the bombers and uh, the graft team over there as well. Right. Uh, with Pau Costa organisation, there's massive amount of training that uh, training sessions that have been taking place with them. And then you've got uh, in the UK. You've got Northumberland Forest Service as well, which are really being at the forefront of training and development, and they've brought a lot of that over to uh, over to Ireland. So, if if a call goes out, and as you say, there's maybe there's a set rule for mm. how many people go out, depending yeah. on what the type is. But would you also be asking questions of, say, before you go out, like how big it is, or the location, or like would that would, could that determine how, maybe we should bring more? Or? Yeah. So. Generally, what I would do is I'd ask how many calls are in for something. If we're going to a house fire, if we're going to grass and forest, how many calls are in for it? And generally, with grass or gorse, if it's fairly well-developed fire, you can see something in the distance, you know. So a lot of the, uh, the retained services around the country, they're all local people. They all know the places like the back of their hand. So the local knowledge is actually on the fire plants. They know the entrances, they know the water sources, they know the landowners. Like that retained service, like... <laughs> You know, it has to be really harnessed. It's it's a phenomenal kind of uh, response mechanism. Like they know their area inside out. That's that's interesting. I was speaking to the uh, some uh, lifeboat crew members recently, and mm. they were saying very similar things. That you really mm. need to know the, the the local knowledge, and and really you only have that through that continuation yeah. of of service in a particular area. So one of the things then in terms of like, so coming up with a suppression plan, um, building up your situational awareness. Like you know, as we spoke with the rate of spread. Um, the topography, the amount of daylight hours left, the amount of resources available en route, the amount of resources in attendance. And then you're looking at in the locality, like so if you decide to set up a dam to lift water from, and um, you decide to block a stream and start lifting water from it, or you need a JCB to cut a line through a load of vegetation. Who's got the JCB? Who's got the tracks machine? Which farm has the water bowser? Which farm has the, 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 the small lake on their land? That kind of stuff. So those little things are hugely important in terms of suppression. Okay, that, that's quite interesting. So that are some of those decisions been made? Do you really need to get there before you make those decisions yeah. and see what the situation is and then start? Yeah, so um, everything is different. So you could go to a fire today and the fuel might have 50% of its moisture content. You could go there next week and it might have no moisture content. The rate of spread might be different. The wind direction might be different. Topographical kind of uh, features might be different. There might be stone walls. There might be streams. And then the big thing for us is like all forest services operate on the understanding that our primary job is to protect life. The next one is to protect property. And then the one after that then surrender humanitarian aid. So life is the first risk. Property is the second. And for me then, you're looking at uh, infrastructure. Mm. So you're looking at critical infrastructure. You're looking at electrical lines. You're looking at pylons. You're looking at gas underground. You're looking at... Uh, the impact on the local communities. And then you've got telecommunication masts as well. All those kind of things. You've got the smoke travel, the density of smoke. Is it lying low? Is it going up into the atmosphere? Like, so there's all these different things determine what your suppression plan is going to be. If you're going out to a wildfire as opposed to, say, an urban or a house fire, mm. is the equipment that you're bringing with you different, even, say, for your own personal equipment? Like, are you expecting... Yeah, so um, every... Fire appliance in Ireland is built with specification and they're called Class B fire appliances. 
So they're built to a specification. They have an arrangement of ladders which are mostly the same across the whole of the country, even though we're different forest services. And then each appliance has to have a tank of 1,800 litres of water and it has to have a pump. And generally the pumps will deliver between somewhere between 2,000 and 4,000 litres of water per minute. They've high pressure hose reels and then you've got deliveries at the back where you've got lay flat hose which you can roll out. Um, so with some of the hoses you can get high pressure but really low volume and then some of the hoses you can get low pressure with big volume. So all the, the fire appliances would have those kind of capabilities. Some of the brigades across Ireland have invested in specialist vehicles into jeeps, into fogging units. So to these high pressure units on the back of a jeep with a 300 litre tank of water and it's like it's like a power washer basically. Okay. You can duct a little bit of foam into them and you know you can use anything a detergent in the water breaks down it makes <laughs> it makes the water wetter basically. Okay. Um, it's like if you put a detergent into the water it breaks the surface tension of the mm-hmm. water. Um, the easiest way of explaining this to people is people put washing up liquid into water when they're stripping wallpaper because it makes the water soak into the paper. Okay. It's the same stuff. It's the same with detergents, putting detergents into water for, for fighting fires and class A fuels and, and, and kind of oil fires. So it so makes the water easier to absorb, basically. It actually yeah. soaks it in there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so wow. if, you, if you put water on the cardboard, mm. it has a surface tension, there's a skin on it, and the water will sit on the cardboard. Mm-hmm. You put washing up liquid into that water, put onto the cardboard, and it soaks in completely. In terms of um, equipment, uh, there's a lot of similarities. In terms of PPE, that's quite different. Mm. So in Dublin, obviously, we're more so more of an urban forest service and we have structural firefighting PPE, which is not really suitable for uh, for fighting wildfires. Now, an officer can relax the PPE requirements, so it depends if the flame lengths are quite low. You're looking at the condition of the crews, you might get them to remove their jackets, wear sunscreen um, and wear a hat maybe. Um, if they're large flames, you're firefighting water under pressure and stuff like that, obviously you need helmets, visors. And that kind of thing. If you find yourself at a wildfire and it's particularly remote, say there isn't a road that can get you close enough yeah. that the hoses will stretch. Mm. Um, what's the what's the call there? Then are you calling? Is yeah. there aerial options or there is? But generally, what we have each appliance has four gore speeders as well. We call it gore speeders, or some places we call them flappers. It's basically it's a rubber mat. It's about 12, 14 inches square rubber mat on a carbon fiber pole. And there's four of them in each appliance. And then also what we've purchased is uh, is backpack sprayers. Okay. So they're 20 litre sprayers. They're, 20, they're flexible canvas tank on the back. Take 20 litres. They weigh 22 and a half kilos when they're full. They don't need 20 litres of water to work. They will work with 10 litres depending on how arduous the walk is going to be for the firefighters. And the problem with the beaters is that's the only tool you would normally have against the flame lens. So if you're working on flames of a metre high maybe, there's a good thermal release rate coming out of the fuels producing flames of one metre high. So it's hard on the firefighters to attack those flames with the beaters. So with the backpack sprayers, they're just for flame suppression. So a couple of squares left and right with, the, with the, the pistol lance, a couple of squares left and right, knock it down, knock it down. That knocks the flame length back and then the beaters get in, the beaters are more effective. Okay. So it reduces the heat stress on the firefighters. It makes the beaters more effective and you can work in a remote area. So you still have to walk back to the truck to fill them up, but they're not, you know, they're, they're not for continuous use, they're just for flame suppression. But the other side of them is if you get a small stream, you can dunk the bag into the stream, fill it up and just put it back in your back. Okay. So you can go into a you can go into a pond in the garden that has a filter in it so the fish don't go into the bag, but you can fill it up. You could walk into a house and fill it out of a tap if the fire was at the back of the house and you had to walk up somewhere or you come back to the fire engine. There's, there's loads of different options with them. Um, they're really, really versatile. And the big thing we've been using them for over the last couple of years since we got them in is... Uh, 
we get a lot of calls from concerned walkers in the mornings when there's been campfires overnight. And generally, instead of getting quailcha out to open up forest roads or, or cutting locks, we can just fill up a couple of bags, walk up into the forest with a shovel or a beater or something like that, pull away the vegetation and use them. Instead of what we used to do was bring a bucket of water up. But now these backpack sprayers are much more effective. If you're, you're tackling an active fire, are you also looking at sources of information at the same time, say, for example, seeing what the weather conditions are mm. going to do for the rest of the day, maybe, or I don't know, is it, it maybe imagery of the fire itself so you can tell if it's growing or, or uh, suppressing? Yeah, so obviously the, with the, the evolution of drone technology has been absolutely huge. We have a kind of an ad hoc arrangement with drones at the moment and um, we can't get them if they're needed out onto the scene um, and they provide the board's eye view and it's a completely different perspective. The perspective you get on the ground firefighting and what you see from the air is completely different. I could imagine, yeah. You identify footpaths, you identify natural fire breaks, you identify changes in vegetation risk the infrastructure, phenomenal tool. The technology that's, in, that's contained in a drone for the, the cost of them is second to none. Um, they're an absolutely amazing tool. And they're one of the biggest things any incident commander that goes to wildfire should be considering straight away to get me an aerial view. And then we've all, we've all different other types of things that we consider, so as part of the suppression plan, we're looking at the tree influences, we're looking at the wind, we're looking at the slope, and we're looking at the aspect. Uh, we're looking at the vegetation, the type of vegetation, the type of fuel, the amount of daylight hours that are left. I have in a presentation a cycle of four screenshots off of uh, the Medair and Weather app on the daytime humidity levels. Mm. And at seven o'clock in the morning, it's up like 93%. By two o'clock in the day, it's at 48%. By nine o'clock in the evening, it's at 90%. And then at 4 a.m., it's at 93%. So this is where you see the typical thing that happens is these fires break out, they're dealt with, and you ask experienced seasoned firefighters, you just ask them straight, what happened to fire? Oh, just went down, died down, and we left it. So there was no, <laughs> there was no action taken, and all of a sudden these raging fires that have been burning through the day, when you get to the darkness hours, they just die down. And the reason they die down is the humidity level. There's like an exchange of moisture between the air and the fuels. So when the moisture content in the air is about 93%, the fuels are going to absorb that. It's like trying to white, light wet paper. When you put the paper back out in the sunshine the next day and the paper dries out, it'll burn. And that's exactly the way wildfires behave. So the ideal time to be fighting wildfires is first light, four, five, six o'clock in the morning. If you look at a good warm day, no clouds in the sky overnight, come out to your windscreen the next morning and the windscreen is soaked. That same moisture is sitting on the vegetation. So you need to be up there in the hills at four, five, six o'clock in the morning when there's no temperature, there's no people around, the roads are quiet and then you can tackle the wildfires and, and mop them up basically before they get back into the sunshine, before it dries out and before you get kind of reignitions of, of everything, you know. Okay. Is there ever a decision made where say there's a wildfire burning and it's not a threat to, to human life or it's not an immediate threat to property just to, to mm. let it burn, you know, that it's not worth the risk, for example, yeah. or the resources yeah. that it would take. Yeah, the, the professional terminology for it's wait for change. Sure, okay. <laughs> um, so wait for change means let it burn. Um, now, wait for change means uh, we could be looking at a, a change in wind direction. Um, I was at one recently in... Uh, in South Dublin, it was born and actually it was an unusual night. The humidity level didn't really drop. It was still in the mid-50s 
And uh, again, it was in gorse and kind of bracken, kind of an intermix of fuel. And it was burning down, but it was burning, had burned uphill all day. And then it was starting to burn downhill, which burns at a much, much slower rate. It's the inverse of the the slope sure. with the angle. So if you're going down 20 degrees, it's going to be much, much slower. So when it burned down, um, it was on private owned land. They had got a water bowser. They'd actually put a wet line in. So they had wet the whole side of the vegetation with a water bowser with a sprayer on the back, which is a huge advantage. And then it was coming down to a natural break. So to commit firefighters in the hours of darkness, there's no life at risk, no property at risk. It's too dangerous. So we do all, we do a thing called a dynamic risk assessment where we look at the, the hazards that are present and we look at what tools we can bring in to mitigate those hazards. So if we go to a domestic fire and there's a live electrical supply, we'll isolate the electrical supply, we'll isolate the gas supply. So that's mitigating that hazard. But in terms of wildfire with underfoot conditions, slope, hours of darkness, flame lengths of 1.5 to 2 metres, there's nothing really you can do to mitigate those hazards. So you do, basically, you look at the benefits versus the risk. What is the benefits of firefighters in against the risk of them being, in there, being injured? So it doesn't work. Um, and one of the things then you might do is you might put a line in, you might put fire cover in around property, wait for it to burn down towards it. Or if you've errors, again, your suppression plan based on the on the rate of spread. So if it's burning at 50 metres per hour and it's 200 metres away, we're now looking at a four-hour window. Can we get a uh, tracks machine in? Can we fo- cut the fuel away from the back of the property? Can we put a line through it? There's all those different things come in, like, you know, but certainly if the risk to firefighters is too great, and the risk to life is quite low or property, it can be it can be left upon. But the, the, the one thing as well is, for me especially, that's why I would try and tackle these as far as early on, is that it's habitat. So the National Parks and Wildlife Service have a huge interest in this as well. All these places, you've got ground nests in boards, you've got different types of um, insects and that kind of stuff. So it's habitat as well. And some people forget that, you know, so. No, that makes a lot of sense. There's obviously major differences between fighting an urban fire and a wildfire. So there must be some must be some substantial training that you have to go under, go through in order to become a, a wildfire fighter. Um, there's there's not not a huge amount compared to being um for structural firefighting. Structural firefighting you're looking at um you're looking at breeding apparatus course. A breeding apparatus course is like it's, it's three weeks long. You do basic breeding apparatus where you know you're finding your way in the dark, you're rescuing casualties. Then you do a compartment firefighting training, which is a week long. You do road traffic collision training, you do swift water rescue training. There's an, an abundance of courses that you have to, to, to basically undertake and be qualified in to work on the fire departments. Um, for wildfire firefighting, they actually all the experts basically say having an understanding of how the fire behaves is the key to an effective response. Bringing in the equipment, training in the equipment, it's that's one thing and it can be done quite quickly. The big thing is the science behind it. In terms of wildfires that we that we do get in Ireland, I mean, are there, like how big can they get? Are there are there any sort of particular fires that really stick in your memory as being, um, you know, particularly challenging or, or a particularly intense event? Yeah, so like the, um, the big thing for me, I joined the Forest Service 18 years ago. When I joined the Forest Service, we went to many forests up around Glen Cullen. I was stationed in Donnybrook when I started off first up around the back of Glen Cullen, a few on Kaliney Hill. If someone said to you, there's a chopper coming from the air corps, be like, Armageddon has happened. Like Getting a helicopter was absolutely out of the equation. It was like never, never being seen. Now you go, and if it's early enough in the day, 
and the request goes in for a helicopter, they're like, yeah, we'll take off in an hour. So like, the one in Holt that we had, it went on for, it went on for a long duration uh, and it was a very unusual fire. And there was a lot of things learned out. Stuff behaved the way, it, you know, you would expect it to behave and then it didn't behave. The fire in Kalini uh, that we had recently, um, where it was probably the nearest we came to losing property. And personally, myself, my view on it is that most of it occurred on unmanaged scrubland. So fuel management is the big thing. You get a fire in, a, in you know, we had one up in uh, up the back of Sagart there on Quilja land. Quilja arrived, they've got a helicopter with a contractor. He arrives with the helicopter. He starts lifting and dumping. We arrive up, they arrive with their tracks machines, their bowsers, like so. That stuff is really well managed. Mm. The, the majority of fires that I've been at that cause difficulty is unmanaged land. So fuel management, coupled with having an understanding, coupled with getting the right equipment, coupled with reducing the risk of ignitions and stuff like that, is kind of is, is the way forward. It's it's a it's a very challenging and committed area of work. What what drew you into being a, a firefighter? Um, <laughs> I had a neighbour. Uh, I still have a neighbour. He's a uh, He's an exceptional fella. Um, I think I went down to the stage when I was about eight years of age. Actually, there's a photograph of it. Um, he's standing in front of a truck when I was about eight years of age and I was just hooked. I was just like, that's the job I want to do. And then I got to know a few firefighters too, my next door neighbour. And then uh, he said to me, yeah, you know, if you want to be a firefighter, you kind of need a good, have a trade going in, like, you know. So then I was always drawn to mechanical things. I was always like, I had an uncle that had a shed full of tools and I kind of wasn't allowed into the house at some stage. I'd be down stripping things out and pulling things apart. So I served my time as an electrician. Um, and uh, still, I was always drawn to the forest. It, was, yeah, it took me three goals to get in. Um, I applied when I was 18. I didn't pass the aptitude test because I was completely unprepared. And then I got interviewed in 2000. Same thing, I was unprepared. Didn't get it. And then I got it. I was successful in 2003 and I started in 2005. I got promoted in 2017 and again in 2019. So, um, and I got into the wildfire stuff in around 2018. What uh, what drew you into the wildfire area? Um, I went to a wildfire out in Sandyford one night and it'd been gone most of the day and there was five or six pumps up at it and there was loads of issues with traffic congestion, access and uh, we were sent up and there was a message sent over the radio to another appliance coming from the north side of the city and I'm from the south side out that way and I knew all the local landmarks and it was the best to sent over the radio and they gave out the name of the road and I was like they have no idea where that is even a map won't show you where that is yeah so I thought after was maybe to look at some kind of pre-fire planning so we do pre-fire planning for buildings but we hadn't done it for, for a while for us so maybe like look at the access roads turning circles for trucks that particular area is on a bus it's on a bus route okay. I think there's only four buses five buses a day go up it but if we park a truck at the road and the bus comes up behind us bus can't reverse yeah. two miles down the road so um, I looked at fire plans I you know got onto the internet looked at a few different things uh, emailed a couple of people had a look and I went to senior management team with a project proposal to uh, to look at maybe just producing a small plan for this area We so we in our district officer vehicles they act as a kind of a, a first line of command support vehicle before we can bring out an incident command unit and they would have laptops that all this stuff can be loaded onto so you can put it all up so maybe look at that and uh, so in fairness the senior management team said yeah could be a good idea so we give you a week on projects. So I went off in uh, my fire brigade jeep out to uh, Sandyford and uh, 
within within an hour, not the locals are knocking on the window. Well, what are you doing? What are you? What's happening? And uh, I found that this year's quarry with about twenty million liters of water in it wow. that was under our nose. All these forests that we've been up there, all we struggled for water. And the guy said to me, "You know about the quarry up there? Never went up. There was about twenty million liters of water in it, ten meters from the road. You can just sit a pump into it and fill all your appliances for a week." And uh, little things like that. And then what happened at the time was there's an organization in Catalonia called Pau Costa Foundation. Mm-hmm. Pau Costa was a firefighter that was killed with a number of his colleagues, unfortunately, in the wildfire. And they set up this thing in his memory. And basically, they educate firefighters from around the world free of charge. It's a funded charity. And Dublin Fire Brigade just happened to be offered a spot on this around the same time that I was looking to do this. So I went over to Catalonia for for a week and uh, did a lot of workshops and went to fires and went to f- post-fire investigation and looked at tactics and my mind was blown away. Came back and I gave the job a presentation on it. Uh, I did a report about what, what they're doing and what we could be doing in terms of equipment-wise and suppression-wise. And then I made contact with a couple of guys over there and I went to Wales then for Wildfire Tactical Advisors uh, workshop, which is in, in which the Wildfire Tactical Advisor is a unique uh, speciality, unique, unique qualification. I went over there and then uh, I ended up going to Northumberland, then to Northumberland Forest Service and training for a week in Advanced Suppression and Incident Command. And then I came back and I would have uh, experience in instructing in the training centre. So we put a course together and that year the recruit trainees, the recruit firefighters in Dublin Fire Brigade, first year ever, got actual training in wildfire. So we probably have 200 recruits that have come through now that have been trained in wildfire and we've the backpacks rolled out, the new holes rolled out. So we're making, that's we're making good progress. Yeah, you're, yeah. Make, you're making a big impact yeah. there. That's fantastic. Well, it's, it's really great work that you're doing, Darren, and it's, uh, it's been fascinating to get a bit more insight on it. And uh, I know you're very busy, so thank you very much for your no time problem. and coming in and chatting to us today. No problem at all. After my chat with Darren, I spoke with Jennifer Barron. Jen is a PhD researcher at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. Jen's research focuses on wildfire patterns and the impact of human activities on their occurrence. Maybe just to start off, are there certain regions in North America, for example, that are really prone to wildfires? Definitely, yeah. So um, both the southwest and the northwest of um, the U.S. and then extending into the west West Coast of Canada uh, are very fire prone. So, you know, thinking about California, Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, those are regions that are often in the news. Um, and also parts of the, the Southwest, like uh, Nevada, Arizona, um, and then also the Southeast of the US, places like For- Florida, were historically very fire prone. And of course, the boreal forests of North America. So, Northern Canada uh, and Alaska. And when, when you get wildfires in these regions, and we, we, you know, we'll dig into the, in the detail as we go on, but what are, kind of the, what are the main effects that you would be, say, interested in or maybe concerned about in terms of, say, maybe human effects and also, of course, ecological effects as well? Yeah, so um, a lot of these systems uh, evolved with fire. So there's both positive and negative consequences of fire happening in these systems. Uh, so some of the positive consequences of fire is that they can facilitate regeneration. So a lot of species in these systems require fire to, for example, uh, release for their cones to release and open and, and germinate. It can stimulate nutrient cycling in the understory. 
it can support hydrologic cycles. Um, but on the flip side, uh, severe wildfires and wildfires that aren't are often uncharacteristic of uh, their historical disturbance regimes can cause ecosystem state transitions into uh, forest types, for example, that we haven't seen there before, can destabilize slopes, um, which makes the soils hydrophobic, so they repel water. And then if we get uh, a bad fire season coupled with pretty heavy precipitation events, uh, we can see uh, localized and regional flooding resulting also in landslides. And then, of course, there's there's threat to, to human values. So things like uh, timber, rangelands, but also human infrastructure, like our road networks, our communities. So yeah, both positive and negative consequences, which are very dependent on where the fire occurs and what type of fire it is. Of course, I can even remember from say, my time in, in North America, even just the smoke from some of these events can be, in terms of the human impact, can be can be quite uh, widespread from quite a distance from where the fires are taking place. Yeah, definitely. And smoke transport is a huge secondary impact and one can, that can impact folks that are very far from where fires are taking place. So this spring, especially, we saw smoke transport from northern Quebec impact uh, kind of across the, the eastern seaboard in the U.S., which impacted, you know, a very large number of people, despite being very, very far geographically from where the fires were taking place. So we, we mentioned a number of areas, say, in North America where, where um, they are quite prone to forest fires and, and wildfires. So say you, you have these uh, conditions aligning and there's there's a, an intense fire, just to kind of get a, a picture of of how big can they get? Like, what, what kind of size are we talking about if you say you have a major fire in BC, maybe in, in terms of area or, or numbers of trees burned? Yeah, so I would say it's a little bit variable. You know, a fire that's a thousand hectares but burning somewhere where no communities are at risk, no infrastructure is at risk, is uh, a large fire, but, you know, the province probably wouldn't term it a fire of note. Uh, and so fires of note is are when a fire is highly visible and, and a potential threat to resources or communities to the extent that a lot of people might want to regularly check in and get information. I would say in general, in the scale of, of thousands of hectares is when we start to see lots of concern and, and risk to communities. Although certainly, you know, if it's very close to community, there can be concern much earlier. Um, we also broke the record this year for the largest fire uh, recorded in BC, which is the Donny Creek complex, which is over uh, 500,000 hectares. I think it got up to over 600,000 hectares. Wow. Um, and that burned earlier this year in the spring. Fires in the boreal forest tend to be much larger than fires in the rest of the province. And that's for a couple reasons, including how we respond to them. It's uh, boreal forest fires burn very hot running through the crowns of trees. Um, and so it's, it's very challenging to, to stop them. Um, and there's also a bunch of reasons why we might not want to stop them. Um, so those, those forests are adapted to, to severe fires. Um, and so both for resource reasons and for ecological reasons, we tend to more manage, that, manage them to protect resources. Uh, so if they're you know, going to burn towards a highway, we try to remove the fuel along the highway before it can get there to avoid closing the highway, as opposed to trying to put it out. Um, in the interior of the province, we're much more likely to try to action fires fully, both because there's much higher population density, um, so there's more values at risk, um, and also because more often we have the resources to be able to do so. In terms of trees burned, I saw that question and I was trying to think of, uh, if you have 500,000 hectares and say you have like 500 to 1,000 stems per hectare, that's like 500 million trees. 
I mean, I'm, I'm assuming like not all of those trees are going to die. So within a fire perimeter, there's often areas that, you know, you'll have a little wet pocket that the fire will skip over because there's too much moisture in there, or you'll have some rock and bare ground. But even then at that scale, I mean, it's, it's millions and millions of trees for sure. Wow, that's a, I guess colossal, a colossal scale, particularly for uh, someone coming from Ireland. That's that's a huge scale, and in terms of the, you mentioned actually the the boreal forest. Can you can you clarify what you mean when you're referring to those uh, and and you're differentiating you know you're sort of differentiating it from from other uh, forests that might be burning? Sure. Yeah. So uh, boreal forests are forests in our you know northern biome. They make up the majority of Canada, but they really only start uh, after most of our population density ends. Um, and they're characterized by species like jack pine, lodgepole pine, spruce trees. The boreal forest also, also extends into northern Europe and Russia. Um, and so, you know, different dynamics there, but, you know, often a lot of commonalities. And they're also, you know, very important ecosystems. They're huge carbon stores. Um, you know, they contain most of Canada's forests. And they're also very important, you know, for biodiversity and for um, ecosystem services, ecosystem protection, because they're such a large area that has relatively low population density. You mentioned that there was a, a record-breaking fire this year. Has, has 2023 in general been a, a bad year for, for, for wildfires? Yeah, I think across, you know, North America and, and especially in Canada, we started the year with uh, a bang, I guess you could say. In May, there was a lot of news about um, Canada burning. And that was in part because we had kind of carryover drought conditions from last fall. So we had a very dry fall last year in Canada. And of course, the year doesn't reset, uh, right? So the previous year can influence the next year's drought conditions. We had very warm and dry spring. And in the spring, the boreal forest is actually primed to burn. So we have this thing called the spring dip. And that's where we have a small dip in the foliar moisture content. So the amount of moisture in the needles of conifers in the north. Uh, in these northern forests, there's also a significant amount of deciduous trees like aspen. Um, and in the spring, they haven't uh, grown their leaves back yet. So normally aspen are very resistant to fire. But in the spring, before they, lose, before they grow out their leaves again, there's a big gap in the canopy, which means that the sun can dry out all the, the forest for, floor fuels and that aspen can't prevent them from burning. So actually, they're often called um, asbestos forests and fire suppression because their leaves are so resistant to burning, the trees are so resistant oh. to burning. And so we had a really big fire season in the boreal in the spring, and then that drought carried over. And so later in the summer, we had a very bad fire season in the interior, which you know has, has continued into the fall so far. Yeah, I think I saw a statistic for just in BC alone this year, I think the area that burned was a about the f a fifth of the size of of the entire uh, island of Ireland. So, uh, to put it in context for for uh, some of our Irish listeners, is is there a trend in terms of you know you mentioned about twenty twenty three has been and that also the, you know you've a carry on if it's a bad drought in one year it you know can transfer into another year. Have you seen a trend or is there a noticeable trend in in how the f fire pa patterns are changing from one year to the next? Definitely yes, especially in British Columbia. So. Um, it's not to say, I guess, and I, I don't love when the media uses the term the new normal because it, it kind of implies a sense of stability. Like we really don't, we know it's going to continue changing. We don't really know quite at what rate or what those changes will continue to look like. But if we get used to this, it will continue to change. So in BC, when I first started researching fire, 2003 was the marker fire season. That's when, that's what evacuated all of Kelowna, which was evacuated again this year, which is, you know, 
uh, a large population center in interior British Columbia. And it was kind of seen as a warning for what's to come, I guess. And then 2017 happened, and that was our largest fire season on record. And then 2018 happened, and then 2021 happened and broke records, and now 2023. So we went from having, you know, one fire season as a warning to, you know, four of our largest fire seasons on record have happened in the past six years or so. And so it's not to say that that we expect every year to be extreme, but what we do think is going to happen is that the frequency of extreme fire seasons is going to increase. So out of the next five-year period, we expect more of those fire seasons to be extreme. And of course, there's still year-to-year fluctuations, but in the in the long term at the broad scale, you know, kind of all else held constant, we expect that the frequency of extreme fire seasons will continue to increase. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's, it's, it's very similar to say uh, other climate factors, like say, if we're talking about just the occurrence of heat waves or the, uh, like my background is, is looking at things to do with like glacial melt and stuff like that. And, and that there, there may be some years where it's not so bad, but it doesn't, you know, it isn't affecting the overall trend. It's, it's increasing frequency of bad years. That's what we're kind of uh, looking to expect. You, you mentioned at the start how, fire can be very important and very beneficial for elements of the ecosystem you know it's it's a it's a force of renewal in in some ways and it's necessary for you know new new uh, new growth so so these these fires would have been burning before you had large scale human settlements in these areas obviously canada has a has a long uh, history with an indigenous population and the the changes from how the fires would have been managed at that time to how they've been managed now. I mean, that must is, there must be quite a contrast between those two sort of societies. Certainly, yeah. So we know that, you know, across Canada in, you know, northern forests and southern forests and coastal forests, Indigenous people used fire as a tool for, for millennia. Um, and so a lot of these ecosystems actually co-evolved with the intentional use of fire um, to manage and steward ecosystems. And it's the removal of that process from the system that has in many ways created the challenge we face today. Of course, we're in you know, climate conditions that have changed at a rate that we have not seen in the past. Um, and so that presents an additional challenge. But, but the, the root cause of the problem is that we've removed that process from the system. Then we begin to think about how today we would reintroduce that process. And so part of that is also who introduces that process, um, and that's where the role of Indigenous communities come in again uh, as, as traditional stewards of the land and, and as, as folks who have worked with these systems for thousands of years, they hold the most expertise in, in how to use fire as a tool, but also thinking about where fire is appropriate to use today, which may not be where it was appropriate to use in the past, and, and what we use it for. So there has been some research uh, in British Columbia that shows that Today, Indigenous communities, when they do use fire, use it for much different, use it for different reasons than they did in the past. So um, Indigenous uses for fire are, you know, to reduce risk to communities for sure. And that's increasingly why it's used today. But it's also used to stimulate medicinal plants uh, as a as a cultural practice, as a ceremony to create forage for for wildlife. Um, and, and those are also values that are often reflected in, in agency use of fire and prescribed fire. You know, we can use prescribed fire to do ecosystem restoration, to manage wildlife habitat, to reduce risk to communities. Um, and so there's a, there's a very important, I guess, piece that is uh, to reduce risk to, you know, human settlements or communities in these ecosystems and also to kind of get ahead of the problem. We have to find a way so that these systems can burn uh, with 
low enough fuel, low enough intensity that it's it's not creating a risk. And so that requires we remove some fuel from the system. And the best way to do that is with fire. But it's very challenging these days to do that because we have you know shorter windows that we can do burns because the climate is hotter and drier and more unpredictable. Um, and a lot of these forests have so much fuel in them that it's not safe to do a burn as they are right now. So we have to go in and do a bunch of thinning beforehand and remove fuel before we do a prescribed burn so that we don't have, you know, an uncontrollable uh, wildfire resulting from from that ignition. So, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of c- complexity if, when we're thinking about an active management response, for sure. I, I kind of feel like there's almost a parallel to where you have a situation where maybe it's been considered to reintroduce a predatory animal into an area, uh, maybe where it would have existed, you know, thousands of years ago. Um, but it, say it's been hunted out or something and then it's like, well, we need to introduce it because it was a benefit to this ecosystem and it, it was a benefit to, you know, thinning numbers where it needed to be thinned and all that kind of stuff. But now we have all this human settlements around. We don't want wolves in our area or something like that. But we've sort of built in this complexity into this area that makes it difficult to sort of revert back to, uh, to maybe a more holistic system. Yeah, I think that's a great example. I'm, I think you might also be thinking of the, the wolf reintroduction in, in Yellowstone specifically. And I do think that's a really good example because, you know, I think generally that's regarded as a successful project, but not without conflict and not without a lot of challenges. And it it requires, you know, some creative thinking and in restoration ecology specifically, there's a lot of conversation around uh, the role, the role that history plays when we're thinking about managing and restoring systems and how we can you know, use that as a context, but then instead help systems to adapt in the future, as opposed to restore them to climate conditions that no longer exist or to conditions at population densities that no longer exist. So how do we use that information and then incorporate it today to manage for the values that we're interested in? It's it's a highly complex topic. What was it about wildfires that, that drew you in? What, why did you choose wildfires to be your area of study? Yeah, I think so I have an environmental science ecology background, and I very quickly became interested in kind of these broad scale processes, right? So not just kind of interactions in systems, like I definitely wasn't interested in studying just one species. Um, I was really interested in how everything works together, all the pieces work together. And I had worked a bit in invasive species dynamics and in climate change. And I think Part of what drew me to wildfire is also because as a scientist, as a researcher, you want to have some level of ability to help a situation or some level of control. Not to say that in in climate research, that's not possible, but in wildfire, the solutions are also very tangible. So, of course, you know, it requires we address climate change, yes, but we can also change forest management practices. And that's something that I can have a direct part in. I have a lot of relationships with managers and there's a lot of interest. Um, and and research funding available to do that kind of work. And so, you know, it's both kind of the timing, the scale of the problem and the complexity of it. And it really fit well with my with my interests in kind of these broad scale questions and also my ability to have some level of autonomy or to have some impact on the situation. Oh, that's fantastic. That that idea of impact is so important. If, if you were going to look at your own impact and the impact of your colleagues, what do you hope for in terms of how we manage forest fires and, and our forests going forward when we look to the future. I mean, considering the the background, obviously, of, of a warming climate, what, what are your hopes for the future? What do you hope to achieve? Yeah, I mean, I hope that, you know, in in 40 years, if I if I look back at, at, at what's happened, I'd, 
I don't expect us, you know, to, to be able to change our systems immediately. And I, you know, there, there has been a lot of change even since I started working in this discipline and the way that people talk about fire and, you know, the programs that are beginning to be developed. And I really hope that I see those translated into action. I think that most people are now being confronted with the reality that we can't expect a world without fire. We, we kind of have this shifting baseline syndrome as well. You know, in Canada, most people's parents and most of their grandparents don't remember ever living with fire as a threat. Or if they did, it was, you know, one year out of their lifetime. That's not the reality anymore. And I think as we come to grapple with that as a society, we'll begin to think more about the ways that we can live with fire as opposed to the ways that we can remove it. You know, there's been a very strong narrative uh, that comes from the introduction of fire suppression post-World War II and the incident command system and, you know, this paramilitary organization that we're fighting a war on fire. And I guess I just don't see it that way. I mean, I still see we can't get rid of fire suppression. We, we will need it and we'll increasingly need it to protect communities. But we also, you know, from a scientific standpoint, we know that we can't suppress our way out of this challenge in, in Canada and especially in British Columbia. And so we have to start thinking about different strategies, the, t- the tools we have available to us to, to create a world with fire that we're okay with living in. Well, the work that you're doing, uh, Jen, sounds really important. I think it's great that we have people like you who have a good sort of whole picture approach. As you say, we're not uh, we're not battling against fire. It has uh, very positive and natural benefits, and we want to be able to look at ways we can we can work in tandem with it. But I'm um, uh, really interested in seeing the, the outcomes of some of your research, and uh, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really interesting talking to you. For sure, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. That's all for this episode. My thanks again to Darren and Jennifer for giving their time and insight. I really enjoyed our conversation and I hope you did too. As always, if you have any thoughts or questions on today's episode, you can get in touch on Met Aaron's social media channels or drop an email to podcast at met.ie. And if you're not already subscribed, you can do so wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening and speak again soon.